from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Michael Winger, a Baha'i now living in Croatia. Michael wrote a book called Changing Patterns, Friendship, Fellowship, and Transformation. The book addresses what it means to share the teachings of the Baha'i faith with others. We also talk about the human potential and the positive outlook the Baha'i faith brings for the destiny of human civilization. I started the interview by asking Michael where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? I grew up until I was a teenager in Cleveland, Ohio. I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish family. Uh, it was pretty good. We lived up in the uh, suburbs of Cleveland. It was pretty nice growing up. We were free as kids to run around. I would, you know, in the summertime, we'd leave the house early in the morning and come back late at night because all the neighborhood kids would play together, and it was a pretty nice, uh, pretty nice setup. How orthodox was your uh, upbringing? Well, it was it was kind of pseudo orthodox, really, because we were pretty liberal. My my mother would keep a kind of a semi kosher home, and uh, my grandparents were very orthodox, but they weren't insistent on us. So it was kind of a liberal thinking kind of orthodoxy. But we were definitely Jewish. I mean, our whole life was around the Jewish community. There was very little interaction outside of that other than my father's business, which was mostly in, in the inner city. As a child, I had a lot of exposure as a, in a unique way to people who were not Jewish, which was very different than my peers. Did you experience any anti-Semitism growing up? Well, of course. I mean, I think that was kind of natural. It wasn't horrendous, but you were always aware of it, and it kind of colored your thinking about life. It colored your interactions. It was, it was always there. I, we had a large, significant part of our family who was still in Europe who were lost in the war. So we had that sensitivity as part of our growing up. And you had experienced it personally growing up? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't horrendous, but it was there. You know, I, it, was, it was there strong enough to to be able to be sensitive when I could pick it up as an adult. Mm-hmm. I, could, I could sense it when it wasn't overtly expressed, but you could sense that it was there. You get those sensitivities built in when you're a child, and you, you, mm-hmm. you become very cognizant of, of uh, what's going on. For example, as, you, know, you ask anybody who was raised in the type of situation I was raised in, and when someone would ask you what your nationality was, that's a clue for, are you Jewish? So you get sensitive to those things, and you learn how to respond and, and deflect and go about it. You know, it seems like an, an honest enough uh, question, but in my generation, that there was a lot of undertone to it. Were you in a predominantly Jewish area or neighborhood when you grew yes, up? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. When we grew up, we were, it was interesting. Where I lived, the streets were, were very ethnic. So my street was mostly Jewish, and the next street was mostly Italian. Although all the kids played together, you knew who you were and you knew who your close friends. Although the Italian community, we would live together, laugh together, fight together. You know, all those things all kind of meshed into one. 
What were your interests growing up? Like any kid, I was interested in sports, mostly. Hanging out, sports, running right. around. We were, yeah. Like I said, we had a pretty free life, so when I was young... You could go anywhere, and you didn't have any concerns about crime. There was just no crime. So as a 7-year-old or 8-year-old, we'd just get on a bus and go somewhere. You wouldn't even imagine doing that today. We would have neighborhood kids playing Capture the Flag, with like 30 kids from all over the place, till 9, 10 o'clock at night. No, our parents never knew where we were. It was safe. Different era. <laughs> yeah, definitely a different era, that's for sure. What did you do after high school? Well, I tried to go to college a couple of times. I wasn't very serious about it. And so uh, when I didn't do well in school and uh, Vietnam was cooking up pretty heavily, I was 1A and uh, getting ready to get drafted into the Vietnam War. And I, I couldn't imagine myself ever harming another human being. So I enlisted in the Air Force. I figured that would be the least of the, the opportunity for me to be put into a combative situation. So I went into the Air Force. And I spent four years in the Air Force. Three of those years was in Madrid, Spain. I got lucky. It was my first experience living outside the country, which had changed my life. Yeah, it was a pretty good experience. I mean, I didn't like the military, but living in another country was, was pretty fantastic. My whole adult life I've spent traveling the world, and I'm very comfortable in, in uh, intercultural situations. A variety of things led me to begin to search, and then I finally found the teachings of Baha'u'llah, which, again, changed my life. What did you do after you completed your term in the Air Force? Then I decided to get serious. I started to look at what I wanted to do. I, was, I worked as an actor for a couple of years, and then I decided to get back into school. I got married. I went to university. When I finished university, I got a job with a large corporation and worked in a large corporation for 11 years. And then I uh, went out on my my own with a partner and started a business, and I've been uh, self-employed ever since. And at what point did you run into the Baha'i faith? Uh, I ran into the faith in 1972. It was prior to my getting married and prior to my going back to university. It was in between the time of getting out of the uh, Air Force and kind of finding myself. It took me a couple of years. I think anybody who was in the military, whether you were in Vietnam or not, you were affected by Vietnam, and it, and it took a while to decompress from that uh, situation. So the two years between 1970 and 72 were pretty exploratory as far as trying to figure out who I was and where I was, and then I, through a series of events, found the teachings and, and studied them, and I basically became a Baha'i by myself. I found the writings, and I, I read them, and I read the books, and I believed, and then I had to go and find the Baha'is. It took me several months to find anybody who was a Baha'i after I had already accepted the teachings in my heart. So what were the series of events that led you to the Baha'i faith? So I had a, a couple of significant epiphanies, if you will. One friend encouraged me to read the New Testament. I read that. Another friend of mine encouraged me to read the Bhagavad Gita, and I read that. And then I read the Quran, and I thought, well, this is all the same basic teaching. I was hitchhiking across the country, and someone gave me a book uh, on the Baha'i faith, and I read that, and that kind of piqued my interest. And I went to a library and took out six books, locked myself in my parents' house in the bedroom, and read the six books in four days, and said, okay, I believe, now where, what do these people look like? Do I have to shave my head? Do I have to you know, wear robes? I had no idea. <laughs> then I took about three months to find the Baha'is. 
Can you describe your epiphany experiences with us? They were very personal and very mystical, so I'm not sure they would translate to someone else. And they were very obvious to me that it was a message to me mm-hmm. inside to start looking, that I was missing something in life, and so I started looking, and then things began to unfold. What was very interesting to me was that in each stage of this process, there was someone else to give me another door to go through. And each door that I went through, the first one being looking at the New Testament, which I read, and I had never read that before. And I recognized that this was truth. And then I read the Bhagavad Gita, and I said, oh my God, this is the same story, but told in a different context. By the time I had come across the writings of the Baha'i Faith, it, it seemed to me that it was all one message. I don't know why I understood that. I have no idea why that was obvious to me. But it was. It was obvious to me. So when I read in the Baha'i teachings that there's only one God and there's only one religion, and there's only one mankind, then it was so clearly obvious to me. And I said, okay. And then I dove in and everything I read just seemed to not only put the puzzle together, but give it color and, and all sorts of um, subtlety that you would look. If you're looking at a painting, you'd be, you know, first you see a painting and you you see it as, well, maybe it attracts you, and then the more you look at it, the more subtlety, the more depth, the more precision of the rest of it comes out. And so the more I read the writings, the more texture it had. While you were looking for the Baha'is, did you share your experience of search with your parents? This was after I was in the military. I wasn't living at home. I came back to my parents after I had found the writings. I was traveling across country. I was traveling towards my parents' home. I was on the East Coast. They lived on the West Coast at that time. And by the time I had gotten to their house to see them, um, I had already come in contact with the faith. Then I started a serious search. And then once I decided to accept it, you know, I talked to my parents about it. They just thought it was basically another phase I was going through, and they weren't that concerned about it. My mother was a little bit, my father less, you know, we were raised Orthodox, but my father was not Orthodox. He had a lot of skepticism towards the, um, what he felt was corruption of, the, of religion. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't really a strong believer. He, he was more of an agnostic. It was very interesting. I remember my mother asking me about why I became a Baha'i, because she had always wanted me to become a rabbi. And my father made a very interesting statement to her, because I left books around the house and he would read them. And he said to her, he said, well, if you look at it from Michael's perspective, maybe he already is a a rabbi by by finding the Baha'i faith. And I thought that was insightful from his perspective. I don't see myself as that, but obviously, but I think he was meant because I I had a deep faith. Well, not only that, but clergy devote their whole lives to their faith, and he probably sees that that's what you've done. Yeah, I think that's what it was. And, and, then, and then it was interesting, on my father's deathbed, a week before he passed away, my sister was trying to talk to him about connecting back with his own spirit. She was coming at it from a Jewish standpoint. He said to her, he said, if I was ever going to be anything, I would be a Baha'i. And, and it wasn't because he didn't know the faith so much. I think it's because he looked at my life and, and had a respect for it. He saw what it did to my life. So how is it that you did find the Baha'is eventually? <laughs> I was selling a motorcycle. 
and the guy who bought it had just come back from living in Argentina, and I had asked him why did he go to Argentina. And I remember, I had been looking for the Baha'is for months, and I asked him why he went to Argentina. He said he went to Argentina to serve the Baha'i community there. And I went, oh, my God. You know? <laughs> so, so I finally connected to the Baha'is. It was very interesting. And where was that? That was in California. Uh-huh. That was in California. I became Baha'i in California, lived in California for the first few years I was a Baha'i, and then lived in several places around the United States. And then a couple years ago, I decided to move to Croatia to uh, serve the Baha'i community here. How would you say finding the Baha'i faith and finding the Baha'is informed the direction that your life took? Wow. <laughs> That's a hard question to answer. You know, I think the major thing it did for me is two things. Number one, it encouraged me to do something with my life that was significant. I think that as I grew in my understanding of the teachings, I recognized more and more that I had a responsibility to find what my talent was, to exploit that talent for the betterment of humanity, and to do something significant with my life. And so I think even during times when I felt like I wasn't succeeding, the faith gave me the encouragement and the drive to keep pushing forward. And that has never left me. And I've seen this in so many people who follow our faith, that there's this longing to do something significant in life and that we shouldn't live here just to, you know, just to live life, that we ought to do something if we have the opportunity to do something significant. And that doing something significant doesn't have to be big. It can just be loving your neighbor and, and having your neighbor recognize that, that it's, that's significant. But we, you know, each day we should try to do something that's, that's significant to us and to someone else. Now, if we have the opportunity to affect another person's life, it also affects our life. And if we have a chance, then we ought to do it in some way that's beneficial. And I think it's easy to say that, but on a day-to-day basis, it's going back to the faith, it's going back to the writings, it's, it's being involved in, with, the, the, with the community where we're all struggling to do this that encourages us to keep going forward. Because, you know, it's tough. The world's tough right now tough place to live. I don't care where you live. It's a tough place to live. You know, the materialism sucks us down. Uh, the pressure of society sucks us down. The media tells us everything's a disaster. It's hard to stay positive. And so I think the, the community and the teachings continue to infuse us with a sense of who we are as, as a people, who we are as a creation, that we're loved by God. We're not, we're not in some type of situation where we're being punished. It's, we're here to learn. We're here to experience, and this is the beginning of an eternal quest. It's very heartwarming. It gives us great strength. Our whole existence here is a flicker. If we are eternal beings, which is a long time, then our being here is just a blink of an eye. You mentioned encouragement, and I think that's a really good attribute. The Baha'i Faith teaches us is that we are really noble beings and that it's just that at the moment our nobility is not developed. The faith is telling us that, look, we're going to grow as a human organism, as a civilization, to a noble civilization with noble attributes and and not that we are always innately 
evil or innately disagreeable or innately warring people? You know, it's an interesting perspective. And I think this is something that, to me, again, not only the encouragement, but we, we live in a world today that tends to be fairly hopeless. And what the faith teaches us is great hope. And the example that I like to use that has been taught is that if we look at humanity as one organism, born and growing, and we look at it as like a child. If you look at a child when they're 17 years old and you look at their history, you go backwards. You see selfishness, you see greed, you see inefficiency, insecurity, um, all, all sorts of negative behavior. And if you were a parent and didn't know anything else, you would have a very negative sense of that child. Well, they're never going to grow up, they're never going to be mature, they're never going to be happy, they're never going to uh, not take, they're never not, you know, all these negative things. As a parent, you recognize that this is just the process of growth and that eventually they'll become an adult and they'll contribute to society. That is the destiny of a child, is to grow up, move past all of these difficulties of childhood and adolescence, and contribute to society. And if you look at it, I'm talking about a, a fairly healthy human being, the longest period of their life is their adulthood, not their childhood. You know, we live a very long time as an adult, from 21, 23 years old to 80 years old is a long time of great productivity and great strength and great contribution. And we as a people are, have just beginning to enter that period. And so our future is of great hope. Of course, if we look backwards, we're going to see adolescence and childhood of great turmoil and great difficulty. But we have a destiny as a human race of tremendous maturity that will last an enormously long period of time. Our faith teaches us that this is the time for the tree to bear fruit. If you look at an avocado tree, that's a seven to ten year period. You know, if you were looking at it during that seven to ten year period, you'd say, my God, this tree is worthless. It never has fruit. But if you knew an avocado tree, you'd say, yeah, it takes ten years. Then it lives for another 50 years giving avocados. We have to look at humanity, not, not towards the past, but towards the great future that's before us. And I think humanity, because we don't see that, because the generality of mankind doesn't see that, we have a world of hopelessness. And I think more than anything else, the mission of an individual Baha'i, I mean, a lot of Baha'is talk about teaching the faith, and that's fine. But to me, the real core mission as a Baha'i is to bring hope to the world is to look at our neighbor's eyes with love and tell them it's okay. There's hope here. And if we can just do that, we've served humanity. I see that especially here in Croatia. You know, these are wonderful people who have been beaten down for hundreds of years. They were first subjugated by the Romans, then the Venetians, then the Ottoman Empire, then the uh, Austrian-Hungarian Empire, then then they were crushed by years of communism, and now they're starting to come out of it, and they don't have a clue. I mean, you talk about hopelessness. These are people who have wonderful hearts who have no, don't see a great future. It's a hard life here. They're wonderful people, but it's a hard life. Not that they're suffering greatly compared to other people, but emotionally they're suffering. The one thing for me that's been great being here 
is the ability to love some of the people here, the people I've met, and give them a sense of hope. Because nothing their experience has been allows for that. It's a very different culture than anything people in the West have ever experienced. We'll return to Michael Winger in just a moment. This is a Baha'i Perspective on WXOJLP, Northampton, Massachusetts. The politicians can say whatever they want, but music is the only thing that can unite the world.
listen, hear me, love me, love me. Give me everything you are, yo, my heart is low. You wanna argue about the world, but I'm universe. I'm trying to show you all of me, Back to a Baha'i perspective. I'm talking with Michael Winger, a Baha'i now living in Croatia who wrote the book Changing Patterns Friendship, Fellowship, and Transformation. I continue our conversation by asking what his first job was in the working world. What occupation did you end up doing? Well, I spent 11 years in a large corporation mm-hmm. and I worked in, in uh, marketing and sales, then I worked in product development. And then I worked in uh, the corporate venturing process on the front end around innovation. How do you move great innovations from idea through the labyrinth of the bureaucracy and bring it into the marketplace? Because of that, my first partner and I started a business doing consulting in the field of innovation. For 20-some years, I worked as a strategic consultant to large corporations, government agencies, etc. And then I got tired of traveling and about oh, about eight years ago, seven years ago, I decided to get into, uh, to migrate my company from doing straight consulting to uh, doing outsourcing. And so over the last seven, eight years, I've been doing engineering outsourcing. So that's kind of different from product development and innovative enterprise. Very to- different. Yeah, it's very different. It's very different. So I'm not using I'm not using my core expertise, but you know, I I was tired of traveling and all yeah. that, and I wanted to earn a living. There was an opportunity that I had, mm-hmm. so I moved the company into that direction, which allowed me to not have to work every day on the job. So now, as long as I can provide engineers to projects and do outsourcing, I'm left with tremendous flexibility to be in, in kind of semi-retirement, although I'm not really retired, but, um, yeah, it, it looks like it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm 65 years old this year, so it's yeah. time. At what point did you decide to go overseas? I had written a book in 2004 about the faith. I was invited in 2006 to give a, a talk at a summer school here in Croatia. Someone had read my book and said, oh, let's get this guy to come here and do, give a talk. So I did. I came here and I gave a talk. And it went over very well. I was, you know, people liked it, and, you know, all that, blah, blah, blah. And then in, uh, in 2010, they invited me back. So in 2010, I came back. And at that time, you know, we went through this tremendous economic crash. My business went to zero and I had nothing to do. I had no income, nothing. 
I had a little bit of money left to, to basically survive, and I was just starting to collect my uh, Social Security, and I had that to live on. So when I came back here to teach the class again, I decided to stay. Now, fortunately, business is starting to come back a little bit, so I'll be in a little bit better position, but I'm, I'm also going to stay here for a while. So you were continuing your outsourcing work in the States while you were... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have a couple people, uh, staff members in the States who help me run the business, and we've, we're back to 50% of what we were, which is phenomenal. I mean, we went from to zero, and now we're back 50%, and, and so that's nice. It's amazing what you can do with the Internet, huh? The, the technology is profound. Between email and Skype and texting and all, the, all this stuff, which is, I mean, even the phone call that we have right now, I'm, I'm using a voice over IP phone. Mm-hmm. People call a, a local U.S. number and it rings in my apartment in Croatia. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It's mm-hmm. amazing. It really has freed people to work just about anywhere in the world. Yeah, well, and I think the only thing that stops us is our lack of vision. You know, if we, if we are aware of what's out there, the opportunities are magnificent. And I don't even understand half the things that are going on or one-tenth of the things that are going on that the young people are talking about. But I'm in awe. You know, I look at them with such tremendous uh, enthusiasm. I mean, one of the things that I see here, even, even, even in this remote part of the world, which is different than, than the experience of America and all that, if there's anything that will change the world today, it's the youth. They're in touch. I mean, with, with all the problems and all the difficulties and all of that, they're in touch. And, and in touch in ways that seem subtle, but I think are profound. I'll give you an example. There are a lot of young people who do video games. And people in my generation look at that askance. A waste of time. They're doing video games. What, a, what is this? You know, we look at it askance. If you really look what's happening, you have a kid in Chicago and another kid in Los Angeles and another kid in a rural farm town in Iowa. And then you have someone in the bush in Africa and another person in London and another person in Croatia and another person in China. And they're all playing the same game at the same time communicating with one another. This is profound Because when it comes to political influence, they will be less susceptible. Because they'll be saying, wait a minute, I have a friend over there. They're not like that, whatever that is. They have a vision of the world, the potential for a vision of the world, so dramatically different than my generation. Because it's not theoretical. They're actually living it. They're experiencing it mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. Maybe the mechanism is not the mechanism I would choose. I don't like video games. They bore the heck out of me. But that's okay. This connection is profound. So what's your experience of the youth in Croatia? The difficulty with the youth here in Croatia is they don't have a lot of hope. There are no jobs here. The economy is terrible. The initiative in the, in, the, in the studies in the school system is going down. Twenty years ago, their education process far exceeded that in America, and it's diminishing very rapidly. So you see the students having less incentive to do well. 
So I'm concerned about that. Yeah. But they're lovely people. On the one hand, there's a struggle around that, and, and, and they don't have a lot of hope around work and, and the future. The other side is their courtesy here. and I mean, Croatia is a country that has almost zero crime at any level. There's no personal crime. So you can walk down the street day or night anywhere in Croatia, even in a big city, completely safe. When I go on a bus, I don't look old, but nevertheless, when I get on a bus, the young people stand up and give you their seat. Even if they have colored hair and tattoos and piercing everywhere, they get up. They have a sense that that's what they're supposed to do. It's a unique community. You know, if you look at it in many ways, you say, oh, my God, I'm, I'm looking at the same youth that I look at in Detroit or Chicago or California or whatever, because a lot of the commonality exists worldwide. But behaviorally, they're very different. They don't have the angst. They don't have the anger of what we see in America, which is tragic because Americans have everything. Even Americans who think they're living in poverty have everything compared to what the, the people here have. Yeah, but you know. there's a lot of people that don't have work here in the United States right now, and they're losing yeah, their homes. I understand that, that there's a big difference. There's a sense of loss in America because they're comparing it to everyone who has. I mean, America is a country of excess. And so if I'm living without a job and I'm living in poverty in America, the poverty is more extreme because I'm comparing it to the people who live near me who have beyond imagination compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, opulence. The people here are living in poverty and they don't feel impoverished. I mean, they know they're in poverty, but they don't feel that angst, that anger. It's just the way life is. Life's hard and they accept it. And I wouldn't have noticed that, but having been here a couple of years, it's become very obvious to me. So, Michael, tell me about your book that you wrote. The book I wrote on the faith was called Changing Patterns, Friendship, Fellowship, and Transformation. It was a book specifically about how to teach the faith. You know, there was a lot of discussion back in 2004 around what people thought it, that it, teaching the faith was about, and I was very concerned about it. Uh, I went back to the writings of uh, Shoghi Effendi and Abdu'l-Bahá and the Hawala, the principal writers of our faith, and I went to the writings and I, I methodically went through those, and I took stories, personal stories that I knew about that weren't made up, but I, I actually knew these stories of how people found the faith and became Baha'is, and I correlated those with certain passages, and what I found was an overwhelming evidence that suggested that regardless of any methodology, the advancement of the faith depended on loving friendships. Yeah. And that was what the book is about. There, there's a statement from Shoghi Effendi, who was the guardian of the faith, who talks about how to advance the teachings of the faith and how to bring the teachings to other people. And it's a very short passage, but it's one that I, I like the best. It says, develop a close friendship, complete confidence, and finally teach them the cause until they are strong. In this statement is a profound sense of the development of a friend and developing confidence in that friend and them and them in, in you. And in doing that, it suggests that it takes time and it takes a loving attitude. Yeah. And we have to be sensitive. 
to the person and where they're coming from. And so it's not a matter of telling people, it's a matter of listening. This faith, it's an amazing well of information. One of the titles of Baha'u'llah, who's the founder of the faith, the prophet founder of the faith, one of his titles that's given to the manifestation of God, this, this being that is sent forth, whether it be Christ or Muhammad or Buddha or Zoroaster, one of the titles is the Son of Reality. This is a, a title that, that many of the Baha'is are familiar with. And this title, Son of Reality, designates this being, this prophet, messenger, whatever, whatever your, one's faith claims it and calls it. But one of the titles is Son of Reality. And the sun is S-U-N, the sun, like the sun and the stars. And this title, for me, is one of the great profound statements of the faith. Because if there is a creator, however we approach that, the first cause, a creator, the cosmic knowledge, the center, the, whatever it is, that many religions use the word God, which is the unknowable, this unknowable being. And then he sends this messenger, the son of reality. What it suggests is that this point is an expression of what reality is. It's not some mystical, I mean, it has a mystical component, but it's not, it's not some mystical, mythical concept. It means that the source of reality, the understanding of reality, is expressed through this being. And we, as the people who follow, people who recognize, people who approach, are in a constant state of Evolution in our thinking, in our belief systems, in everything. When Christ came, he spoke about quantum theory. But people didn't see it as, as quantum theory because they didn't know about quantum theory. But as our knowledge today begins to look at that, we can begin to look at the teachings of Christ, of Muhammad, of Buddha, in a very different light because our understanding has changed. Particle physicists recently said, they suggested that we have multiple dimensions in multiple universes. And there's uh, Mikio Keiku, one of the world's great physicists, uh, may, gives a talk about this. And so, Abdu'l-Bahá spoke about that. You know, about when we leave this world, we go to another world, another universe. And Christ said, in my father's house there are many, in my father's mansion there are many rooms. Well, he was expressing the same principle that now the physicists are beginning to understand. Spoken in a different time, in a different language to a different people. But it's still an expression of reality. I mean, one of the fundamental verities of our faith is that science and religion, as you well know, must be in harmony. That doesn't mean our understanding is stagnant. It means that we will understand religion and understand science in greater and greater conceptual frameworks as we mature and grow. We, as Baha'is even, can't look at our writings and be fixed. I had this discussion the other day with someone. We were looking at the first hidden word of Baha'u'llah, one of his statements. And in this statement, he says, Possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart that thine may be a sovereignty, ancient, imperishable, and everlasting. 
And if you look at this at first blush, it seems as if this statement is about ethics, because that's a pure, kindly, and radiant heart. And it's true, it is an ethical statement, but it's not only an ethical statement. It's a statement about innovation. It's a statement about the relationships of planetary orbs, one to another. Possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart means we have to be open to understanding and expression of our knowledge, because without that, we become prejudicial, and we block ourselves from learning. We block ourselves from invention. We block ourselves from observation. And it's an ethical statement of how to live one to another. And we have to be careful as Baha'is not to fall into the trap and having it be some type of rigidity because we are going to grow and develop and understand things in a vastly different way as the centuries roll by. Have you written anything else, Michael? I've got another book at the publisher right now that they've been sitting on for a couple of months, which is a book of uh, poetry that I wrote and uh, photography that I've taken. That's a completely different <laughs> subject area. Right. And in the last six months, I've had a tremendous dry spell, so I'm waiting for the next... <laughs> Inspiration, <prompt>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, you said early on in the interview that when you were in the Air Force and you went to, uh, when you went to Spain, that it really changed your life. But it sounds like you didn't really get to travel until you went to Croatia. Is that true? But no, no. I, most of my professional career, I traveled. Oh, so you traveled all over the world? I didn't live somewhere else until I moved to Croatia. That was the, I see. That was the next time I lived anywhere a significant period of time. But I'll, although I'm in uh, the early 70s, I lived for three months in London. But yeah, I mean, it, that, the way it changed my life was it, it opened me up to how to look at different peoples, you know, and recognize that we we're all part of one family. I mean, I traveled a lot to, for example, to Central America and felt very comfortable doing that you know, mm -hmm. while I was living in the States. The experience in Spain was so opening of my heart to the world, you know, and opening my mind to the world and recognizing that, you know, everywhere you go, there's this, there's a wonderment. You know, people really want the same thing. They want to live in, they want to live in safety. They want to have a good life. They want their children to grow up and be successful. You know, they want to be happy. They want to have comfort. Actually, people really want to be able to love one another, but they're scared to death to do it. They don't know how. And I think, that's, I think that's our job. I think our job as a Baha'i is to teach people how to do it. There's a little book that we all are studying called Reflections on the Life of the Spirit. It's just a little booklet, a simple, book, simple booklet. This is what this booklet is about. It's about how do we teach each other how to have a conversation on a higher level than how did the cowboys do this weekend. You know, how do we elevate our conversation to something that's significant, that touches our lives, that's meaningful to us, and having the, the comfort to be able to do it? You know, one of the sections of this little booklet is about life after death. None of us know what that is. But we should be able to talk about it comfortably without feeling, you know, angst on us. We're all going somewhere. We all have a one-way ticket out of here. 
you know, so we ought to be able to have comfort in talking about it, or at least being curious about it, because we don't have any choice. How long do you think you'll be in Croatia? I don't know. How long is the sun going to shine? <laughs> yeah, so for the time being, it's uh, an indefinite endeavor. I have a great freedom in my life to kind of blow with the wind. You know, that doesn't mean I'll, I'll take every sale that goes, but I have the opportunity to. A very dear friend of mine wants me to come to Africa and, uh, and start some consulting work there that they want, want me to do. And I, I said, I'm glad to do it, but I can't move there because I feel very connected to the community here. But I'll probably travel there a couple times a year to, to Kenya to do some consulting work, which brings me back to my original field, which I, I look forward to now. So I don't know. You know, I, I just I feel very privileged to be in a place where I can kind of do whatever pops up. I feel such incredible privilege in being able to do it. I don't know why I don't know why I had this privilege, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, use the gifts that are given to you. You know, Paula says, "Oh God, increase my astonishment." And I think that's, that's the, one of the great statements of, the, of, of our writings. Every day we should wake up and say, Oh God, increase my astonishment, because it's an astonishing thing to be alive. Having been created is a gift in and of itself. We, we deserve nothing more than that, and we should seize every moment. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, my privilege. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Michael Winger a Baha'i now living in Croatia, who is the author of the book Changing Patterns, Friendship, Fellowship, and Transformation. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
Turning inside out 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.